Monday's experts always know what's best. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. That is right. And straight up from the top, we'll get the sponsors out of the way. This special episode of the summer edition of The People's Game is brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. Why Sporting Chance Media? They've just released, and when I say they, I actually mean me and my cohort of friends at Sporting Chance Media, a one of our first feature-length docos. That is Grassroots Footy Finley, all about the Finley Footy Club and its importance to that community. Check it out now on our new website, sportingchancemag.com. It's looking fresh. The documentary is getting massive reviews, so don't miss out. Also, to give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the bat, my co-host here, Jack, and of course, ex- producer extraordinaire, Casey, uh, sat down with Shannon Gill from the season that was 1993 and talked about all good things, football, nostalgia, Check out that pod. It's going Game Busters as well. But what you're here for is this current one, the People's Game Summer Edition. Footy season is done. Casey's still re-watching West Coast Eagles victories on uh, Fox Footy and her DVR. I think she even put it on our VHS. Like, she's getting every possible medium possible. But what we're trying to do now is transition into summer and give you the sports talk from the sports dorks that you love so much. So our first segment, of course, is going to be our sporting lives what we've done in the world of sport this week, um, and really since we last talked to you, which was before the week of the grand final. And Casey has gone on a little bit of a different angle here. She's watched a lot of basketball. We'll get to that later on because it's all in vogue at the moment. But what have you done in terms of the sports world this week, Casey? Well, Gordo, as you mentioned, I have been watching the grand final replay on loop. Um, but in lieu of uh, AFL footy at the moment. I actually took myself to the movies on Monday, which was a big treat because I haven't been able to do that in a long time. And I finally got along to see the great Aussie film, The Merger, which was awesome because it was a great way to still be engaged with footy and do something a bit different. And also being at the movies by yourself and watching a great film is one of life's best pleasures. I had the best time. So it was a great movie, great time. Got to switch off the phone and not look at it for an hour and a half. And I thoroughly recommend going to see it and supporting Aussie cinema. So when you say a great Aussie film, is it is it that or is it just a good film in general? Because I feel like, especially with Aussie films, they get pigeonholed into this very yeah. like kitsch kind of criteria of, oh, yeah, but here's what you're going to expect. You're going to expect larrikinisms. You're going to expect like goofy characters, like a very sunshiny type film like is it, yes. is it that, or does it have a little bit of substance is is it a is it a vanilla slice or is it like a meal <laughs> um i think it is a bit of a vanilla slice and i don't mean that to take anything away from the film i think it is what you would refer to as a typical aussie film for those elements that you mentioned but i don't think that makes it anything less of a film i don't know how it would translate into an overseas market for example but I think for what it is, and what it is is a great comedy. It's a bit, you know, got a bit of drama in there. I actually had a bit of like tears rolling down the cheeks at one point because it had this really beautiful moment. And I can't remember the last time that I was that overtly emotional in a film. Um, laughed out loud, never do that in movies either. So I think that's because. The roller coaster, yeah. It the was tears emotional and, roller coaster. <laughs> um, it was just. I think it did that, though, because it was so close to home in being an Australian film. Like, I think a lot of people have those experiences of coming from small country towns or having an association with a small country town that has a football club, that the community is really based around, that have all those inside jokes, that have those characters that you can relate to. And then I think what 
uh, Damien Callanan did on top of that was sort of layer it with these complex issues that, you know, we're dealing at the moment in terms of our immigration policy and the atrocities that are happening on Manus Island and Nauru. And they sort of come in just at this really like top line kind of, they're just sprinkled on the top of the story. And that's not to take away from the complexity of those issues. But I think what he does is just bring that in a little bit to bring those footy narratives into a really modern age where there are new stories to be told. It's not just, you know, yes, we've got to sell a meat tray to save the footy club and all the white men in the town get to play and save the day. It's we're in a new space now in our sports narrative. There are new people playing the game and they've got different stories to tell. But it's still a comedy. There's still sad moments. But it's not trying to really ram that message down to you and, and be really parochial about it. It's um, just doing it in a way that's telling a story that's really genuine and heartwarming. And I just think, like, it knocked it out of the park. I just loved it. Would it hold up as a film that isn't about sports? Like, there are certain certain people that enjoy sports films, and I think the fight genre really fits in with that yep. in particular. But would it just – if you just like films in general – could you go see that and enjoy it without knowing about Aussie rules, without knowing much about Australia, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know the football element of it is there, but it's not you have to know the game or know the rules or know your particular teams or sporting history. It's just part of the narrative. And I think there's a lot of stuff that are going out, um, that goes outside of the game, which is the relationships between the people in the movie and um, the, you know, the humour with it. And I think... Like it does have something for everyone, which I know is a real cliche when you're talking about any type of art, but I think it really does. It was just really heartwarming and lovely and I really, really liked it. It just it was the perfect thing to do in a week where I was really missing football. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very good. All right. The merger, go check it out. Free plug for those guys. So what what involved in your sporting life this week? Well, Jack? I went to the first game of NBL that I can ever remember going to. The first game of basketball that I've been present at without being a player. And as a junior basketballer, I was colloquially described as a pufferfish crossed with a gorilla. I was very good on defense. Um, yeah, just imagine that. Like, I don't even know what people were imagining, but I was a beast. And so I've never been to the live, to basketball live, yep. which Casey and I sort of worked out as we were walking into, um, what is it now? Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne Arena. Arena in Melbourne, next to Melbourne Park. No, at Melbourne Park, next to the Melbourne Cricket Ground. In case you didn't know, it's inhabited by Melbourne United. To be fair, though, I much appreciate that being the Melbourne Arena as opposed to Hisense or Vodafone or any of the other 17 sponsors. But, yeah, we went and, um, I mean, I found it weird, but I also very, very quickly settled on the fact that if you go to the NBL expecting it to be like an AFL game or like a footy game, you're just going to end up miserable. Like, why are they making noise all the time? And like, why can't I just sit and chill? And if you get over that, it has its own subculture. It has its own traditions. Um, and I guess that I managed to be more open-minded than I normally am throughout the afternoon to the point that I actually quite enjoyed it and actively looked at tickets for Sunday. So that's a, a huge win for Melbourne United. For me to have gone once and be like, I reckon I'll go next week. So do you find that, that fundamentally different to football though? Yeah, it is. The noise, I, f- I feel like... I just feel like in basketball, like people expect it. I'm not salty about it. Like at footy, I don't need that ever to enjoy the experience. I feel like at basketball, there are points where that stuff is is necessary. Like almost, maybe that's a game dynamic thing. But when you say like when you say the noise, what are you referring to? Because like it's, it's, like it's a very Americanified. That's not really a word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, type of sport where mm. there is like the entertainment and the sport crossover. 
So, like, you have cheerleaders that are prevalent and they come in and out of the game almost constantly. You have courtside music. You often have DJs at courtside. You have an announcer that's always present. It's a very uh, vocal and very, like, like sensory experience all the time. Whereas if you go to a live footy game, like, like you said, it's like there's the siren and the whistle and the cheers. That's it. There's no external noise pumped into that stadium. Yeah, footy's like going to a casual, quiet bar. The NBL is like going to revs. <laughs> nah, no. Nah, like nah. that's it, it's. There's a lot going on. Yeah, no, 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 no. The the footy is like going to your local pub. The NBL is like going to a dance bar, and then like maybe UFC is like going to revs. Like like combat sports. <laughs> combat sports is the next level up, but that's that's not revs. Okay, well whatever it is, it's you've, very you've upgraded from bars to from pubs yeah. To like bars. I've gone from one. I've gone from like eight pm to four am. Yeah, or later. Yeah. Um. No, like, and I thought as an experience it does work. I was completely baffled by the stand up until the opposition score things. I was like, oh, that was freaking Casey, why, why are we still, why are we stood up? And I was a little bit, and this isn't a knock on you case for the tickets, but I was a little, originally a little bit stunned at the proximity to the court relative to Australian rules. In reality, it's not that different because in Aussie rules, there's not a lot of places to sit where you can see with the naked eye the whole ground. Mm. But in basketball, um, you can see it really well. And the thing that I did take is that, and I think this is a, a topic really to discuss. It's on the agenda. Um, I think you get a much better appreciation of the speed of the ball and the the spaces that they're working in live than you do on TV. Like I was gripped by basketball live in a way that I'm not normally gripped by the skill of it on the box. And I wonder whether that is something that is inherent to all sports. To understand the skill of it, you have to actually be there in the flesh. See, that I disagree with because I think... A lot of the time, the highlights, the highlight reels, and the hype tape makes sports look better than it actually is. Like House of Highlights goes global and trending because of how incredible those highlights are. Mm. But I think seeing it in four different angles is more impressive than just watching it live. For me, that might be you come in and out of the, you come in and out of the lens, perhaps. Because for you, who's not a basketball native. You come into it, and you go, oh my god! Like, do you see, like, like how, how did, like, I suppose to ever to watch your first ever live alley oop, is to go, how can two people telepathically realize when the ball's gonna be thrown up and then you slam it down, but then to watch, like, MJ's famous like under the hoop slam, is to go, like, to see that from four different angles is more impressive than watching it just once live, because yeah. you can't appreciate what he's done really, the things that they do, especially basketball. Because it's so open and it's probably probably the one thing that basketball doesn't get credit for is because it's so open, it's not contested. Like most of our sports are really contested or they're super combative. So even things like baseball, cricket, tennis, it's one-on-one, it's the mental warfare and it's not the concentration. We can appreciate that. We can relate to that. Like rugby, footy, even soccer, it's like there's bodies and there's chaos and there's contact. So you go, oh, you know, that was a tough hit, whatever. With basketball, it's open. So you know, you get hit in the hand, it's a foul. So you go, how can that possibly be hard? But what you know is is the chaos. It's the speed of how everything's happening and the ability to synchronize that amongst other players and also within yourself. I also think two points there. If you watch a highlights package, you're expecting highlights. So yeah. it's never going to be the same as seeing that thing the first time it happens Ooh, I see in that's, the flesh. That's where I disagree. If you... Unless it's Dusty's goal from the pocket, in which case watch it nah, 80 Kevin times Durant, and it's still amazing. Yes. Kevin Durant <laughs> in game four of the NBA finals last year hit the same three as he did the year before in game three. Mm. If you get those side by side, watching that on loop, you could watch that as a GIF on loop 
for days and not get bored. The fact that he had the audacity to just pull up from like, I don't know, like 40 feet out from the hoop <laughs> and just go, snake, nails this. Like that's that's the stuff that basketball has. And it has those moments because it's so chaotic. It's, as you said, it's noisy, it's fast, it's always happening, it's always subbing. But there's always a moment in that game. And even even on Sunday afternoon, like there were moments in that game where you just go, this is, that's changed the momentum. I think you're more likely to be hooked live because I think this is partly a different for people. It's based on how you watch sport. But I don't think I could commit that amount of attention to an NBL game on TV because of the way that I watch televised sports. So for me to get properly hooked on the NBL, I think there's an element of I have to fully immerse in it, not just the play, but everything that el- everything else that goes along yeah. to actually get gripped by the game. Um, and in the absence of a lot of those factors, I just don't think it would have ever had the ability to cut through. Um because, I mean, you look at it and there's kids going with their dads. It, it is becoming, um, and this is sort of where we're going with the next discussion point, a big cultural standpoint in, in our summer. Despite the fact that, you, and I think this is again later on, the, con- the competition is not necessarily elite. It's not an NBA standard. It's not a world-leading league, arguably, which we can sort of get into. Definitely, definitely, on. definitely. Um, on that as well, it is, it is arguably, especially in Victoria, the most participatory sport that we have. Like, more more kids play basketball than they play footy. It's but- not unexpected because basketball's always had high numbers because of that, just based on what you need to play basketball, which is not much. You need a ball. You can say yeah. that about soccer. You could say that about footy. No, but footy, you need 18 people and a bench. Mm. Basketball, you need five players and you need, and you need 90 minutes of time. It's true. And, like, when I say participatory sport, I mean Monday night social basketball. Tuesday night social basketball. Yeah, gotcha. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, plus competitive, plus red yeah, ball, yeah, plus state yeah. league, plus the NBL. It kind of makes sense then. I'm less speculative now. Yeah. Sort of just the final point on that experience when you mentioned the time is the time is it's very, very easily packaged hmm. as an afternoon. And it's an afternoon rather than an evening, which is what footy becomes, or like three hours of BBL or a day. Like, it's got a very good time window, I think, yeah. for and, younger kids. And like they do play NBL, like, night games as well. Yeah. But I think also, like you said, you know, it's 10-minute quarters, which, you know, are never 10 minutes, but it's still as – it's more contained in a time-friendly space, like, for families and kids yeah. than what footy is. Which oh, – we'll talk about later in, term, in terms of the something we've got coming up, but I disagree with that a little bit because with timeouts and stuff, it's still a four-hour chunk of your time. To and from getting off the Richmond platform would be close to four hours if you wanted to take it, take everything in possible. You could shorten that to three, but there's no way you're getting in and out in under three hours. So how long do you think it takes you to go to a football game? About the same. Well, for us, we get home at 4am often. <laughs> and you can have to basketball as well. <laughs> maybe that's our problem. <laughs> or maybe it's just that it, maybe, maybe it's not shorter. Maybe it just feels shorter. Yeah, maybe. I think maybe because like the live aspect of it, like there, might feel shorter because of how they manage the time while you're there with the entertainment. Mm. Like it's never. I felt like the game went so quick. Like I was like, oh my god, it's nearly over, which I don't often do at footy unless Richmond are playing and we're marginally ahead. (laughs) In which case, I'm like, oh my god, time is not moving. Um, But yeah, I mean, we went in, got a. I mean, yeah, it was a day out, and we sort of weren't in any time hurry. But I feel like if I was in more of a time hurry, it would have fitted in. Net nicer than a game of footy. Mm. Maybe yeah. that's because I'm less immersed in. I don't need therapeutic time when I go to the basketball. I do when I go to the footy. Mm. Oh, like I need things, <laughs> like my walk along the, the Yarrow, <laughs> or like you know my little drink afterwards, or my you know I need that stuff. 
JB has alluded to the fact that he is not a basketball native. And this brings up our new segment for the summer, which is Dr. Fandom's Fan Queries, to our literal doctor of fandom, Casey Now, Simmons. can I just preface this entire no, no. question and segment by saying this is a very, very poor... It's not even a veiled dig. It's just a straight-out <laughs> dig at me, and I'm not cool with it. All right. Anyway, if you want to ask Casey a question, obviously it's the first week of our summer edition... Uh, you can at Casey Simons, which is K-A-S-E-Y-S-Y-M-O-N-S, or hit us up via our general handle that is at SC underscore mag underscore Oz uh, and ask us your fan questions. And this week's fan question is, if or when you go to a sport for the first time, like JB did to the NBL this week, <sighs> It's not a failed. It's not. A, it's not a veiled dig. It's just a straight up dig. I said that. Is don't, it, don't, don't, you don't need to repeat my words. Should you research and/or prepare to the required level, or expect that your group or the event itself will fill you in? And that's done basically around some of the comments that JB made during that game, saying things like, "I uh, think." Well, I get a. I get a really rough deal. Point, I say things for the sake of humor, <laughs> and people take them literally. Oh. Like, what did I say? Like, the team that is better at scoring will win. Correct. <laughs> like, did you actually think I was being serious? No, no, I did because you didn't say that. What you said is, I, I say, I made a tweet during the game saying that, am I watching a brawl or basketball? We are getting smashed in the paint tonight, which we were. Yeah. What you said was, yes, their bigs are more proficient at scoring. We need to we need to make most of our, score, most of our offensive opportunities. <laughs> now... It's, which is correct. Which is correct. Well done. But what you've just said is, <laughs> yes, we need to score more points. Because every time you have possession of the ball, it's an offensive opportunity. You can't say that I was wrong. I can't say you're wrong, but what I'm saying is... So what I'm saying is, as a, as a and to, to Dr. Fandom, is that... And this is kind of the part you said, if you go way back and listen to... Uh, probably the first episode with you, actually. Yeah. Is that, mm-hmm. like, the anxiety around... Like joining a fan group and feeling included is like JB obviously feels included in the group. Just just go out and say it. Like he didn't have any trepidation. Like I'm not really a basketball nerd. I don't know about you know pick and rolls or or high screens or low screens or the low post or whatever. He's just gone and been like, yeah, I've got some facts. I'm just going to say it, which is great <laughs> because you feel comfortable in the group. That's not a dig at all. That's saying that you feel comfortable with it. We have made you feel inclusive in a basketball fandom environment, regardless of your entry level of knowledge. What I'm saying is that if you are not JB and not have that confidence, should you expect just to be able to say anything and have your friends, colleagues, fellow fans, or the sport itself fill you in, or do you need to do a bit of research? And the difference in this, to ask the world's longest question, is uh, <laughs> like in cycling, for instance, every year it comes on the Tour de France on SBS, and they presume you know nothing. So you watch the you watch the tour, and as a cycling fan, I don't know how a peloton works and why someone breaks away. Like all the basic rudimentary factors of cycling, I already know, but they explain every single time and every single stage for a whole month because there's a chance that a person will tune in just for the sake of tuning in and not know the rules. I think it's like it's almost a no to all of those things. I don't think you need to come to it with prepared knowledge. I don't think you need to expect your friends to fill you in. And I don't think you should expect the sport to fill you in. I think that first experience that you have should be an organic experience where you go in if you want to with nothing and just see what happens. And I think that's completely fine. I think if you want to do research on the sport, I think if you 
do you want to go have a chat with your friends about it? That's all fine too. But I don't think there should be any expectation on you as a new fan to do a lot of work before you go into something. I think it should just be an organic relationship because I think that's how the best fan relationships come about is when something organically happens within you to say, I like this. I'm not sure why. I don't know about the rules, but there's something about this game that's speaking to me and I want to do more. I want to go to more games. I want to talk about it more because I think for me, like that's probably how I've come into a lot of sports is going into things just like something's happening here. Like um, almost like with ice hockey, like I found that sort of was something that I went to that I just wanted to go for the spectacle of it. Didn't know anything about ice hockey. Didn't do any research. I just wanted to go see what's going on. Um, and it was an organic experience and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I also think if you're going to sport, relying on people to bring you into it, that's also a bit of like – I don't know, danger territory, I think, because I think you could get sold into something that is probably not like a genuine love of the game. Like, I don't know from your point of view, JB, but I felt like maybe I would have been like pushing basketball onto you a bit too much. <laughs> if you, you would were. never do that to me, Casey. <laughs> But because I was so biased and I was just like, this music is great. We're having a great time and you are loving this. <laughs> um and I'm sure you were, but I think for some people who they're just like, yep, I'm going to go rely on my friends. They're going to give me a great experience. It's probably not true. I think you really do need to have that good experience within yourself. I think context is important. So like me and you, I'm sort of like, man, I'll just ask Casey. Um, that was kind of laziness to be honest, but like most of the rules <laughs> of basketball, it's not a super complicated game. Like it's pretty no. easy to grasp just by watching the one that I, and I think it's different. In an Australian context, I found my formative experience in baseball very different. And that was essentially going to the baseball with me, my dad, my dad's American mate, and going to a Giants game. And that, because that was a little bit cross cultural, the experience wasn't just about this is how things are done, but it's also like this is why baseball is what it is to America. And it was sort of both of those things. And that mm. was when I learned, you know, they have the American League and they have the National League. And when I actually sort of, was sold into all of those things and they have things like the closer and they have cult figure closers because at that time um, the Giants had Brian Wilson who was the beard. He was unbelievable and we bought foam beards and stuff. Um, so I think that added a different dimension to that experience. I sort of had no hesitation on relying on you, but then I didn't think it was complicated enough of a game. The opposite experience is me taking people to Aussie rules, which is yeah. very, very tricky when they're people from England because I'm always like, you need to love this. <laughs> and it's probably not the best approach. Yeah. And I, like from my point of view too, with taking people to Aussie rules, so Aussie rules is my number one. It's, I would find it very difficult to take someone as a new fan to the game to watch like my team. I'd have no problem taking them to watch other teams play. I mean, I've seen you do that and you were terrible at it. Exactly, because I can't handle people relying on me to explain rules and why things are happening when I'm watching my team. I can't be relied on when I'm watching the team that's going to go on to win the premiership play. It's just so bloody stressful. It's so My life is so hard. It's really hard to be up at the top, Jack, all right? You would know from last year. Come on. To go from an abstract point of view, though, it's <clears> not something that's very uncommon in other fields. So like when you go to an art gallery, there's always like a disclaimer or a caption or something under the piece saying what it's about. Or if you go into like the entry, like the like the foyer of a of a certain collection will have a brief blurb about this is what you're about to see, this is the period, this is what it means, this is what their history was, and give you like a like a primer. Mm. 
And I suppose most sports do that. Like if you, if you went to the NBL on the weekend, you get a little brochure saying, mm. yep. here's the two teams. But also you, know, you, you know. know the context because you know United won it last year. You, you well, learned... But you don't necessarily know that. If you got given well, a ticket told. or bought a ticket, but you, 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 it is possible to just go, the basketball is on, I'm interested and buy a ticket and not have known that. I guess to sum up that whole thing, I think what I would have said to answer that initial question a few years ago would be very different to what I'm saying now because I think how I used to come at fandom was always to really outwardly project myself as a big fan of that sport and very knowledgeable in that space as well. So I probably would have always recommended to other people to like, you need to know everything, you need to be prepared, this is what it's going to be like because people are going to question you in that space. And I think that is still a little bit true depending on the sport. I think sometimes when you go into those spaces, people do question people who seem maybe a bit uneasy or a bit uncomfortable and it's not quite natural because they're new in those spaces. But I think now the best way to enjoy sport is just to enjoy it however you can. So if you are just wanting to go to a sport to enjoy it for what it is with just to check it out and you can't be bothered doing any research or you don't really want to spend enough time learning a new game, you just want to go and experience it, I think that's fine. But then also if you do want to like pick a team in a new code because you've moved to a new place or you want to engage with some of your friends who are in, you know, in a particular sport that you're not and you want to get that knowledge from them, I think that's fine too. But I think as I mentioned before, if you are relying on friends, maybe talk to them before you do go to the sporting event just so they're aware that you do need some help and they know how to handle you, particularly if they're big fans of that team because you don't want to distract from their fan experience as well. I need Correct. help, Casey. I need help. Long story short, <laughs> if your big men get beaten in the paint, you need them to score more points. And a deserved ovation from the fans here at the Staples Center. Howard for three. Oh, Howard knocks down the three-pointer. So the people's question this week, which JB alluded to very expertly just before, is, is the NBL slash WNBL now Australia's summer number two? I'm going to jump right in there yeah. because the WNBL is not going to be Australia's number two women's sport in Melbourne while they're playing it at the venue that they're currently playing it at, which is in the middle of nowhere. Have you been to that venue? Nope. But it's, it's a very good venue. Yeah, but it's like 60 minutes from home. It doesn't They've matter. they got really good numbers there it on gets the weekend. amazing numbers. It sells out. And in preseason, so in preseason, it was $30 to see both teams, the women's and the men's, go play there against American colleges. And the place sold out in half an hour. See, okay. 7,000 people. And... Well, when I'll take say, that, take that say, point and just... When you say the middle of nowhere, but that is the state basketball centre. So that's where if you are, are you for a child that wants to go and play college one day, you want to go represent the Boomers, you want to go you know, play for your country, play in the NBA one day, whatever you want to do, you will go to that place if you live in Melbourne or Victoria and play basketball. So you'll get used to travelling there. It is no different to living in Eltham and going to the MCG to watch football. It's a 90-minute trip. It's easy to get there by public transport. They run extra services there when an event day is on. It's, it, I've been, I went to all of our preseason games there as a United fan, and it was super easy and super fun. And if anything, you get that little buzz if you are like a member of, yeah, I'm one of those. It's, like, it's no different to going and watching your team train before a grand final or go to an open training and get like, yeah, I'm one, of, I'm one of those ironed on diehards. Like, I'm really part of this. I win the chip, they win the chip, we all win the flag together. Like mm. That's the kind of vibe I get from from having games there. Would I like to see the Boomers play at Melbourne Arena? For sure. Yes. And if, they're, if it's 15,000s max, I reckon we'd push it. I reckon we'd go close. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great facility out there, but like Jack, I've never been there. Um, and I know that the NBA, NBL are going to bring in a new team that's going to be based there, and I think it's great for basketball. I think that like that facility and what it is doing for the game here is fantastic. But also, I enjoy WNBL a lot, and this is probably going to sound awful, but I really don't want to go out there either, Jack. Like, I think it's hard to get out there too, and it's far away. So while I do think it's great, and I'm so thrilled that so many people are going and that it is getting great crowds because that's fantastic for the game, and I do want to go, but I'm also a very lazy sports supporter too, which I do hate to admit, and I do go to a lot of live sport, and I am privileged enough to live very close to the CBD. So having those games at places like Melbourne Arena and the MCG and those top-level facilities are almost in my backyard. So it is a lot easier for me to go to those games. And I know that that is not the experience of everyone living in Melbourne or across the state or across the country. So I'm not going to complain about it being far away because I know (laughs) that it's not a leg that I have to stand on. But also... I do wish that there were a few games that were a little bit closer, just selfishly, that I would go to. And maybe I should just get off my butt and make the effort and go. And I, I hopefully will get to a Boomers game this season. But, yes, I am acknowledging my laziness. And in terms of laziness. a strategical point, basketball is a massive eastern suburbs sport. And if yeah. you look at the SEABL and Rep Ball and the Big V, most of the big like historical clubs, and even the clubs that used to be in the NBL, it's like the another one of Vikings – those kind of like Knox basketballs in or was in the WNBL, they, Danong Rangers, they all are out that way. So having the stadium there for for training purposes, for game purposes, for the for the professional, sub-professional, semi-professional tier with the sport is still at, unfortunately, in terms of the WNBL, makes more sense for the players than anyone else. So it is one of those weird ones where uh, the fans might, the inner suburban fans might be slightly inconvenienced, but it's one sport that's sort of about their players, and their administrators, and their participants first, and not trying to re-engineer it, which we have seen with like the AFLW of like let's make it free so people turn up. They've gone no, let's make people let's make people pay because mm. it's bloody good basketball, and let's play it where the basketballers are. And people will show up because it's good basketball. I mean, and, like, and they, and they do. I'm sort of still. I still think it's better brought into the city, and I still don't think those people that are playing WNBA or WNBL rather would be upset if it was Not at all. if it was no, no, if no, it no. was at Melbourne Arena. And I just feel mm. like you don't. I mean, I feel like if I went into Melbourne Arena on a Sunday to watch the WNBL, there's a fair chance that I would do other things on the same day within the premises that I'm in, like the National Gallery of Victoria and all of Melbourne's other attractions and all of that stuff. It's a day, whereas like. Driving out to the far eastern suburbs, that nothing about that appeals to me. That is a very individual circumstance, yeah. but I just don't see any harm in putting the WL WNBL at that venue. I understand what you're saying. I yeah, think it's yeah. great the basketball has a heartland and caters to that heartland, but at the very, very elite level, could we not be playing in the middle of Melbourne to yeah. make it accessible? Because those people, those people are going to come anyway. So my question is, if you then put it in a bigger stadium, you get those people, you then draw in your northern suburbs wankers who don't want to drive to the southeast. <laughs> yeah. Hey, presto, we've got a bigger crowd. Because yeah. that was like I, that was a genuine case of I looked at it and went, oh, where is it? No, it's an hour away. No, I'm yeah. not going. My, my more point was just because they play games out at Turner doesn't mean it's not, like, not Australia's number two behind cricket. Because I think... Yes, Melbourne City's women's team plays at Amy Park, but no one turns up. Mm. Yep. 
agree. But so, like, to bring it back to the original premise of, I, I totally agree. Like, if we can, let's give them more. Let's give them more seats and more exposure, more oxygen, more pay, all of it. I'm all for that. But I'm like, the original question was, especially after the opening weekend of the NBL, where they broke their attendance record since the 1996 season, and that's like when we used to have gays, we used to have heel, like we used to have like the, the golden age Peak. of Australian yeah. basketball. And we're back to that now, but without those names. Like, yeah. Australia's biggest basketball is now playing the NBA. And people amazing. are still turning up to go watch what you referred to before in inverted commas, maybe tongue-in-cheek, was as a lesser league. And I think my point for that is that the NBL has proven that you need your league to be competitive for people to turn up. Because as much as it's not the NBA, we probably now have the second most competitive league in the world. Yeah, Absolutely. In a country of 24 million, the number of people we have playing either in the NBA or massive, expensive uh, European leagues is huge. And obviously that's a great thing for basketball and a great thing for our, for our exports. But you're still turning up to an NBL game where we're seeing quality basketball being played. And so I think when yeah people have realized that the NBL is not some... That's, that's the ultimate difference between like the NBL and the A-League is that the A-League, we don't have that. Like the A-League, we are... I think ranked, you know, like the three hundredth best league in the world. Really? Like, there's like there's Isn't like that no bad? Well like there's a lot of European countries and we're not yeah. above any of them. I don't them. know anything about the A League, so this is Oh surely to we're me. above somewhere like far like Lithuania or the Bosnian League. So this week's comparison would be that Usain Bolt came over for a trial with the Mariners and he's still on trial there and then the counter offer came from a Maltese Super League club. And Malta has about the population of Geelong. So that's yeah. who we're competing with for talent. Right. Like we are competing yeah. with the minnows of the minnows of the minnows. Well, I also think that the fact that we are using Usain Bolt as a marketing chess piece in itself is evidence of where the competition is at. Mm. Like that, that, and this is the comparison to Malta is perfect because, like the Premier League, even the English, I mean English football takes itself so seriously at all levels that I couldn't even imagine a League Two club doing that. No. Um, and you look across the board, it's very unsurprising that it's our competition that is using Usain Bolt. The MLS won't do it because um, I imagine that if he could be there, he probably would be. Um, so, yeah, I think it – my thing, and I think this goes back to the dynamics, like soccer is a slower and, a, and less act, action-packed game, and I wonder whether something like basketball that just inherently has more scoring and more opportunities for entertainment is never is, is just a better product for really young kids. Um, I, I mean, I found the basketball more entertaining than I found the soccer. What basketball won't be able to generate for me that soccer will be able to generate is the emotional connection of so supporting um, a team like the Socceroos at a World Cup, which I found I find super immersive, or uh, like supporting Blackpool when they're in the Premier League. So that that's the part I never understood because for the teams that we have, like Melbourne United is Melbourne's team. It's the one opportunity I have as a sports fan to go and be super like unrealistic, unfeasibly patriotic about my city. Mm -hmm. Because we play, like, it's the only Melbourne city. It's the only Melbourne team in that competition. It helps that we're good. It helps that we have some great players. But we also get that when our national team plays. The Australian national team is probably two or three years away from really, really pushing the American team that's allowed to play in a competition. Like, we never push, like, an, an NBA all-star team, and that's no. unfeasible. But the teams that they send out to international competitions, we could actually go and make America lift and force them to play LeBron and force them to play Kevin Durant at, at FIBA events. Like, 
I reckon, and back again, if you go back to the nineties when we had that golden era, they were like a super, super competitive and super followed team in international competition, and our women's team as well. Yeah, and that's that's women's probably the, the one where I think if the A League and the W League wanted to raise their profile, tip it all into the women's because like female. Football players in Australia are top class. Yeah. And you've got Kerr finally winning the award she deserved to win as International Player of the Year. Yep. You have the best footballer in the world playing in the W League and no one cares. It's ridiculous. No, I think that's an indictment on the way that they've marketed their women's competition. Mm -hmm. Comparative to, like, I think there was a big battle and it was spoken about um, in terms of what would happen when footy finished. And we had that little window that was immediately occupied by the, the women's cricket team, the Southern Stars. And in in contrast, soccer was nowhere. Soccer should have been getting the W League up into that window as quickly as they could, or well, both leagues because they have both the talent. Leagues. But then the problem with that is people will people should, as a sporting nation, be more invested in the Matildas at a World Cup than we are at probably the majority of our teams, other than maybe the cricket team at a World Cup. Yeah, in terms of a chance of winning, in, well, that's it. In terms of a chance of actually winning an mm. international sporting event, they are as close as any national team yep. right now, they are probably, you could argue, closer than the men's cricket team. Oh, way closer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that is just a huge opportunity missed. Yep. And so around that is the question of how many sports can a country of 24 million people like actually foster in a certain season? So we do, as a country, do a pretty reasonable job of fully committing to AFL, fully committing to NRL, and whatever representative factors they have. So instead of Origins, some internationals, rugby league, we do an okay job of supporting rugby union, but it's usually the private school class and the, and the upper class, and we all get behind the Wallabies, but very fleetingly. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's our national team, and we get beaten. Cool. And then we come to summer, everyone follows cricket because it's cricket. It's, you know, it's so far ingrained in our national psyche that it's probably almost impossible to ignore and not get upset about. And I think it's a very negative sport in many ways where – we kind of expect them to win and get upset when they lose. And then we have this kind of like patchwork quilt of sports in summer that come in and out of, of vogue and attention. So like the tennis is massive for the two weeks the Australian Open's on. And maybe like the week before when you've got like the Hotman Cup and like the Brisbane International. And then it kind of peters out and maybe we maybe we flick onto Fox Sports and watch a Davis Cup or whatever. Yeah, golf does much the same thing. Golf does much the same thing with the majors and whatever. And we have Australians playing all those sports. And we play niche sports like hockey. We've got good squash players. But how many sports in that summer space can we legitimately think can be successful? And I suppose in the two big parties competing is can the A-League, W-League, and the NBL and WNBL both succeed in summer? And probably the AFLW as well. Mm -hmm. I think yes. I don't have any issues with sports clashing because I think they all have their separate audiences, really. And I think, like, I don't believe in every sport having their own clean, fresh air, which is always the argument mm. with the AFLW fixturing. Um, clean air. It's got to be clean, none of this dirty air. I think all of those sports can thrive if they're given the proper resourcing, the proper structure, and the proper support from the ad- from an administration level. I don't think the support needs to come from the fan level. I think once fans see a sporting code that of the administrators obviously believe in, that they're advertising and that they're supporting. I think the fans, fans flock to that sort of stuff. I think when it becomes an issue with fans is when they see a sporting code that is fixtured at just poor times that are not family-friendly, 
It's not on TV. They don't see the advertising. So they pick up that the administration or the sporting body doesn't believe in that sport. So then that sends the messages down that they shouldn't care about it, which we're starting to see a little bit with the AFLW. But I think once that support is shown from the league's bodies, I think fans say, okay, yes, this is a great sport. I'm going to watch it. And then I think all sports, if they have that support, do thrive. And that's been the advantage, especially of the NBL with Kesselman being essentially the sole owner, yeah. operator, <laughs> chief, everything. He's been like, I want this to succeed. And he just did it. And now he's at the stage where he can offsell it to people. Who, yeah, I think you need you need that massive power figure, whether that's one person or a collective of people, to really drive it, to drive anything forward, really. Mm. That's just company operations, really. Because they go, this is what we need to do. And then everyone else will go. And that's what happened with Crop Media and Melbourne United. It's like, actually, that's really successful. And I want my piece. Yep. And then they buy a piece. And then and once you have big entities buying pieces and you know that's going to fund itself and we can let it free and people will get around it, which they have. Whereas the A-League, like, they can't, they can't drive it as as they're going now, and no one wants a piece of it. That's like, well, if you can't organise your house, I'm not going to buy it off you. So. Mm. I mean, and, much the same with AFLW, where like no one knows. Like, when's the season starting? Where's we don't have first, a fixture. Like, where's no the idea. first game at? Like, how <laughs> yeah. do they possibly think that's going to be successful if we can't plan ahead? Yeah, and that's a Morrison government job, like the AFL. That that has you can have no confidence in the administration of women's football when we don't have a fixture. Like, we'll probably get, at the rate we're going, we'll get a men's fixture before we get a women's fixture. It's highly likely. Like, I would, don't worry, it wouldn't even surprise me anymore. No. It took us, what, eight weeks to actually, like, it took us an obscenely long amount of time to even work out what we were doing. So, bizarre. Yeah. Truly bizarre. Regular listeners to The People's Game will realise that we love to talk about sports, but also love to talk just as much about sports media, sports writing, sports culture, and all things surrounding. So this week's book club is going to be a bit of a debate on the prevalence of sports profiles versus what I call sports PR. And uh, in the show notes today will be a couple of different links to a couple of different pieces, including our great friend Conrad Marshall wrote a, a very good piece on uh, Mr. Bogut, who's now playing for the Sydney Kings. Uh, but then also some other links to some other pieces that have been around the traps in the last kind of fortnight, which are both examples of sports profiles written by independent journalists and writers, and then also pieces done by sports people themselves of, of various themes and various genres. Um, and so I think the first point here is the contention around the sport profile is that do we, as the general reading public, read a sports profile because of the sport, because of the writer, or because of the, the subject? And why do we read profiles in general? I think we read them to get a better perspective of someone that you don't necessarily know in a public sense. Yeah. You get a better feel for their personality. You get a better feel for what it's like to interact with them. You get a better feel for their beliefs and their view of the world. And I think that is inherently what you want. But for me, it's entertainment. Like I love nothing more than sitting down on a weekend and reading a long form profile. Um, and the Bogut one ticked every box for me because he's a character that I think is, he's controversial. He's intriguing. This profile would have been really hard to write because Conrad had to be really impartial in terms of his own opinions of what Andrew Bogut was saying so that he could just draw out the thinking behind the controversial tweets. And I think that was probably one of the reasons that it was so impressive as an article is it didn't buy you into 
I'm interviewing him and I think he's a flog or I think his opinions are wrong. You, I don't feel like you ever got anything other than questioning of those opinions, which is what a good profiler should be doing. Because he didn't, and he also, in contrast, was happy to ask those questions and wasn't just blowing smoke up Andrew Bogut's ass. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. But when I read profiles, it's probably for a little bit of the same reason. It's mostly for entertainment, um, like you said, Jack. For me, it's not so much the person or the writer, or I guess we're probably more talking about sports um, profiles here. It's more like I will sort of follow maybe a bit of a conversation online or with friends about things that they've read. Like you were the one who pointed me to that profile. You said, have you read the Andrew Bogart profile by Conrad Marshall? It's good. So I'm more attracted to reading something by someone who's told me that it's going to be good writing because I want to read examples of good writing. Um, another like piece that we sort of had on the list of discussion is um, the Haley O'Shaughnessy piece that was in The Ringer recently, which is a profile on Hassan Whiteside. That's an NBA player that I'm not really particularly interested in, but I followed a, a thread on Twitter, people just talking about it, and I was like, okay, here's a profile that people are talking about. I want to check this out because I want to see – why people think it's good. So it's not so much, I mean, I am a fan of Haley O'Shaughnessy from The Ringer and her writing, but um, yeah, it's not so much the person, it's not so much the sport. It's I want to find out what makes a good profile, I guess. And that's probably just driven from my love of writing and my love of sports writing. So maybe that is a bit of a niche answer. Yeah. To me, it's a bit like a piece of art. So mm. someone goes and paints a person. If you're the next person to paint them, you have to paint them with a slightly different style to create something different and to add a new perspective to how you see that person and to how that person is viewed. And a profile is exactly the same as a portrait in an art sense, I think, in that sense. So, and then this Andrew Bogut piece sheds new light on someone like Andrew Bogut. It made me think again about him and his value to basketball in a commercial sense, but also his personal opinions and whether they were overplayed or underplayed. Yeah. I don't know if I reached a conclusion on that, and that's potentially because the writer didn't reach a conclusion. But just on that, I know some people have film directors, like have a favourite sports team or they have a favourite film director and they'll just watch you know every mm. Richmond game or they'll watch every movie by X director. I'm a bit like that with writers. Like yeah. if I know that X has written a profile – I will 100% read that profile. I will buy the magazine for the sake of that particular thing. Um, I'm thinking Eric Jensen. I'm thinking Martin Flanagan. I'm thinking Conrad is high on that list. There's there's a list of people I know if you've written something, I'm going to read it because I know that it will give me that. So you, I think you've still got room, and this is going back to that little old American journalism where you had the Plimptons and the Mailers. There's still room for that person that you follow as a writer. Um, but I think again, with profiles, the best profiles are the ones about people that you don't know about at all. I think is still the, it's when you're like, it's like watching a movie for the first time. And so what's the, well. what's the difference and the merit between having Andrew Bogut have his story told impartially by a journalist, in this case, Conrad Marshall versus say LeBron, who's just released his series on HBO called the shop where he talks freely and openly about his background, his history, his thoughts, his philosophies and also kind of takes on that role of like pseudo interviewer journalist himself by interviewing other people in that show as well but or like or to a lesser extent the prevalence of players voice the players tribune uh, exclusive insights and these kind of player content driven uh yeah pieces and videos and articles around like we have a story to tell which we which we admit like we say like 
Whiteside had a story to tell. Bogut has a story to tell. Why don't they tell those stories? Because, and Bogut is a really good example of this, if Bogut writes the piece about Bogut, he gives you his views, he doesn't hold them to account. So what you get by Conrad interviewing him is you get, this is the evidence that goes against what you are saying, Andrew. How would you respond to that? Andrew Bogut, I'm going to guess as a writer, and you may get footballers that look at their views and then assess them, but I think that's pretty rare. You're not going to get something like a political view held up if the individual athlete is writing the column. You're just going to get their opinion. You're not going to get that assessed and analysed and held to account in the in the manner that you need it to be held to account for it to be a cracking piece of journalism. I think there are, there's value in Bogut writing that piece, but you're only ever going to get one side of it. So is there a difference, I suppose, between sports journalism and big J journalism? Because the things that you just described about, like holding people to account and independence and like well-balanced views are all big J journalism pieces. So this is where I think that it's really curious that sport and journalism, big J have a distinction written to them. There's a couple of elements to that. The first one is stylistically, you deal with things like honorifics differently in sports journalism to, you know, if you're writing about a politician. So there's there's, there's stylistic differences that just exist. And I think we should, you know, just whatever. Um, But that has led to a sort of a belief that sports journalism is inherently softer. But I don't understand that because I, and I said to you today, if you're a football writer, you could be writing about, Asada and corruption. And Hmm. guess what? In the last seven years, you have been. If you are a cycling reporter, you are writing about doping and corruption. If you are a cricket reporter, there's probably an allegation of match fixing thrown around every single year. So you are a sports journalist dealing with serious issues of integrity, dealing with serious issues of governance and organizational failure, and serious issues of corruption that could have potentially life-threatening consequences for subjects that you're interviewing, for sources, etc. So to suggest that we can hold sports journalism to a lesser account than big J journalism is just, it's absolutely ludicrous. And it gives the sports journalists an out. It allows punditry in sports journalism to be more important than actual, proper, good journalism holding Cricket Australia to account, for example. Even in journalism, and this is probably where the waters get really, really murky, is there are standards that vary wildly from publication to publication. How many unverified or unnamed sources do we need to run with a story? There's no, like, industry golden standard on that. So I just, I think that it's problematic even to, it's very hard to just talk about a like a golden standard. It's like Gideon would talk about the line. Where is where is the line? And so that's very hard for the industry as a whole to decide on. And then we've got, I think, in at least in sort of culture, a different standard for sports journalists, which is just plain weird. I think. So I think the only defence of the sports person that I have when they go down the players' voice, players' tribune approach is that they get to control their own narrative, and so. They're holding two different things to account. So if you're like, we're very happy to consume the celebrity profile in GQ. Someone like an actor releases a new film, they get their little glossy thing on GQ. Esquire, GQ. Yeah, yeah. we read the profile and we go, oh, cool. We don't go, oh, like how much input did they have? And like, did they have a ghostwriter? Or like, did they, did they read it first and then say, take this out and put that in and whatever. And that's what we're seeing with the player's voice and player's tribune is like when... Kevin Love comes out with his piece about mental health issues and his battles with anxiety. Like he wants to control that narrative because he knows that he still has to play basketball because he's a basketballer first. But do we 
do we want to see that become the norm or do we want to see the Lee Jenkins of the world? Do we want to see the Conrad Marshalls of the world? Do we want to see those people go to Kevin and be like, or have Kevin come to them and be like, I have a story to tell you. I mean, I still take this, the player written piece with a grain of salt. I think I find mm. yes, 90% of them very, very dull. Mm-hmm. And the ones that I don't find dull, I think the story is so powerful that it would probably succeed anywhere. My my question with those pieces, and it's probably incumbent on the readers a little bit, if we read them, we still have to take them with a grain of salt, like we would take, and like we should take, a piece written by a journalist and be happy to question things in that piece. We should read it with an analytical mind and go, this is one perspective. Because I guess the counter-argument, and you've sort of touched on this, is even a writer going into writing about a subject is not unbiased. Like, no one is totally unbiased. So Conrad has an opinion on Andrew Bogut. The skill in his work is not revealing that opinion. That's probably a good segue there to say, are writers, journalists, profilers, etc., at danger of losing this to that first-person narrative um, environment? Like, will the Players' Voice and the Players' Tribune, Bleacher Reporters, Go Ride with Marshawn Lynch, those type of things, even the worlds of, like, media tell-alls and celebrity tell-alls kind of phase out the need for profiles to exist? Or is there still an expectation that people want to know the real side of LeBron James, of whoever, and also, you know, celebrities in general in the kind of stuff? Yeah, I don't see it going away, um, that traditional journalism in that space, mostly because I think, I think this is like a social media thing because I think, even with websites like the Players Tribune and and um and Players Voice, those pieces to me are so similar to what you would see a lot of athletes do when they just take screenshots of their notepad on their phone and put it up on their Twitter or their Instagram as their own little stories anyway. So I feel like we're getting more used to reading from players' perspectives from a social media platform and hearing from them so much because they've got control of their own platforms now that it would take a really special story on a platform like that from a first-person perspective to get a lot of cut through, I think. And I think for me personally, I'm not really going to those sites a lot unless I've been told that there's something really good there. And I feel like I've got enough of a sense of what's going on with the athletes that I follow and I admire by just following them personally. But for me, I want to go and read something that's written by a really good journalist because I think that's going to give me more than reading something that's just directly from an athlete in that narrative because I feel like I know all that stuff already because I'm kind of along that journey with them from Hmm. their online personas that they already put out there. I think that inherently good writing will always succeed. If you are good at your job and good at profiling, there will always be room for it because you'll do it in a way that allows you to keep doing it. Um, I don't think you have to be as compromised. Like you don't have to be that compromised to write profiles. Like some people will say no, but you will. There's plenty of subjects that will say yes. Um, and I think the players' tribune, players' voice style content. Um, there's a place, but it'll be the the pieces that I'll read will be the things like the forward armored piece and the Usman Kawaja piece that I found generally were just really, really, really good stories. Um, and if that's a medium that helps to bring them out, great. But I, yeah, it's not going to replace. Um, proper profiling, I don't think. Always know what's best. Always tell you what you should have done. Monday's experts. All right, thank you for listening to the People's Game Summer Edition, and we'll be back with you next week.